I didn't grow up reading the Reformers. Uh, I grew up in what probably people would call the Southern fundamentalism of, of, of the Baptist variety. Uh, and what we did read was the Bible. And we, we learned to memorize the Bible in the King James Version. That's the only version we had back in those old days. I still think it's a pretty good one myself. I often use it today. Uh, but really, the Bible is what led me to the Reformers, uh, studying the Bible and particularly the problem, if you want to call it that, the, the theological conundrum, the mystery of, of how a person comes into right relationship with God. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. When you look back over the 20th century, what individuals come to mind? What theologians, what historians, perhaps even philosophers or biblical commentators are have been the most influential in your own life. Well, I know in as I look back on on my own life, I think some of the early earliest uh, influences were not just theologians but historians. And one historian was and is still today Timothy George who uh, not only had an impact on me personally through many of his writings, uh, but his, his scholarship on the Reformation in particular was extremely influential in my own personal pilgrimage in the 20th century. There has been a, a transition, uh, mid-century really, between uh, Protestant liberalism to a conservative resurgence. And Timothy George was right in the middle, lived right in the middle of that period. And in that conservative resurgence, his work on the Reformers and uh, more broadly the recovery of Reformation theology proved to be instrumental in ways that that we are still benefiting from today. Well, it really is a joy to have with me uh, Dr. Timothy George, who is Dean of Beeson Divinity School at uh, of of Samford University. Uh, This is a position he's held since the school's inception in 1988, and of course, just recently, he announced uh, his retirement. This will be his last year serving there as dean. Of course, many of our listeners will know know him from uh, not only his responsibilities there at at Beeson, but uh, his involvement uh, both at uh, Christianity Today, uh, First Things, Books and Culture, and a a number of other uh, publishing organizations. Some of his books that are uh, in many ways classics, uh, I would I would certainly throw in there Theology of the Reformers, uh, which has just been uh, an updated edition, has just been published a couple of years ago. It, it really has been a, a staple textbook on Reformation theology, not just for uh, pastors in the church, but for many students in, in universities and seminaries around the world. 
Uh, he's the author of many other books as well. One of my favorites that I can't help but mention is Reading Scripture with the Reformers, uh, a book that uh, looks at sola scriptura and the hermeneutics that the Reformers applied in the 16th century. Timothy George, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Matthew, I'm honored to be with you today. I, I can't help but uh, remember that uh, reading Scripture with the Reformers, uh, that book was one of the first books that uh, we did an interview with. Uh, we interviewed you on this, this work uh, in, in one of the first, I think it might have been the first issue of Credo Magazine. And yeah, I remember that. <laughs> that, that book, uh, I would just say a, a quick word to our listeners, it Many of them may be familiar with Theology of the Reformers, which which just uh, underwent its 20, 25th anniversary edition. But I would encourage our listeners to to pick up reading Scripture with the Reformers. I, I don't mm. think you meant it this way, but in some ways it's a type of a sequel um, to mm-hmm. to your earlier book. Uh, but yeah. Maybe where we could begin in this our conversation today is to go way back to your uh, your days at Harvard University, and you did a PhD there uh, mm-hmm. under George Hunston Williams. But you mm-hmm. also, uh, for a time, were able to interact with the late medieval scholar and Reformation historian Heiko Oberman. Uh, when he was there at Harvard for a brief period of t- period of time, in which you were his teaching assistant, as as he then went off, uh, I believe it was to Germany. Maybe you could just begin. I mean, this is to me, this is fascinating. How, what were those early days like for you as a as a graduate student, and and in what ways did did uh, Heiko influence you uh, to be the theologian and historian you are today? Well, when I think back to those days at Harvard Divinity School, uh, two things come to mind. One, uh, I was a pastor. Uh, I was a pastor of an inner-city church dealing with what we call street kids, a lot of folks in the drug culture and the hippie, what we used to call the hippie movement way back in those days. Uh, and so I was I was involved in evangelism and kind of church planting and sharing the gospel. Uh, at the same time, I was studying at Harvard Divinity School at a rather high, sophisticated level of scholarship with some of the great historians of the 20th century, no doubt about it. You've mentioned two of them. A major professor was George Hunston Williams, who had a profound influence on me in many ways, helping me to see the the great sweep of Christian history, though he's best remembered for his great book, uh, The Radical Reformation. But then Heiko Obermann came there, maybe for a year, year and a half. I was his teaching fellow. I worked very closely with him and was influenced by him in a lot of ways. Uh, He really tied the Reformation to the medieval period that had come before it and helped me to see the texture of history in a different way. He was a magnificent classroom teacher, one of the best I've ever had. The third person, also another terrific classroom teacher, a former student of Obermann, David Steinmetz. Uh, He was at Duke already at that time, but he too came back to Harvard and did a year as a visiting professor, and I studied with him. He was on my examination committee. I became very close to all three of those great historians and learned so much from each one of them uh, about 
what history is, how to do it, how to pursue it in terms of sources, and then how to present it in a way that you know is lively and engaging because you're dealing with life and death issues. You know, the worst sin a historian can commit is to be boring. And uh, they all three taught me how not to be boring in the classroom. So I'm grateful for what they uh, conveyed to me back in those days. You know, we could we could spend time on each of those figures. For example, you know, David Steinmetz. Uh, I think of of his his work on Martin Luther. Uh, even even uh, that classic article he wrote on pre-critical, pre-modern exegesis. Yeah, uh, I exactly. remember reading that article for the first time, and it just opening my eyes to a whole new world uh, of of interpreters going past, you know, Schleiermacher to the reformers and the fathers. And uh, he's had, he, as you just mentioned, he had an influence on you. Would you say with, with Heiko Obermann uh, as well, I mean, we think, uh, the, the book I think of is his Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, there's been many, many biographies written on Luther, so many you probably couldn't fill uh, a room with them. Um, has this book, though, in particular, been perhaps one of the the best or the greatest biographies today on Luther? And, and, and how has that, that biography shaped your own work on Luther? Yeah, I, I certainly think it's one of the great biographies of Luther, maybe the single greatest that stands out of a big crowd. And it's gotten even bigger with the flux of new books on Luther over the last year or two with the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Well, uh, God uh, Between Man and the Devil, in, in some ways it plays off another book on Luther by Richard Marius, uh, uh, a, a much a different kind of historian, but you know he loved Erasmus, born in humanism, and kind of looked down on Luther. It's a very negative assessment of Luther, and he wrote a book uh, about Luther, man between God and death. And so uh, Heiko is in a sense spinning off Marius's title, man between God and the devil, and and what he was trying to do there is to show that uh, Luther was a person of the 16th century. He took seriously the reality of evil even in a personified form. And when we look back now on some of the things Luther said about the devil, we might want to chuckle or say, well, you know, he just belongs back to those benighted Middle Ages. Uh, what, what Heiko Overman does in that book that's so wonderful, he digs down under those roots and finds there kind of a competing spirituality that Luther grabbed hold on, and it was electric. And uh, it had to do with, uh, with life and death issues, with time and eternity. And he showed that there is at the at the heart of of the Christian life is this word Luther uses in German Anfechtungen, which we can't really translate into English very well. We say temptations, betrayal, assault, and behind that is is a is an evil force with which we have to deal, with which Jesus Christ has dealt in his life, death, and resurrection. And there's no bypassing that. Uh, Erasmus, uh, of course, believed in the devil. Erasmus would never say there was no devil. He wasn't that stupid. But Erasmus is a, is a devil on on Prozac. He, he's a devil that's weak, that's <laughs> sleepy, that's you know uh, anemic. Luther's devil is a raging inferno, and you see it in his great hymn, "A Mighty Fortress Is Our God." Uh, how Jesus Christ has conquered, Lord Sabaoth has conquered the evil one, and that victory is ours because we belong to him. 
Well, Obermann brings that out in a kind of tour de force of historical scholarship. Uh, and it grabbed me when I first heard him present that in class and then reading the book. So that last year when I was invited to give one of the plenary addresses at the Evangelical Theological Society, I, 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 taught, I, I called it, Where Are the Nail Prints, The Devil and Dr. Luther? And in some ways it was a spinoff of Obermann's take on Luther. Now, whether it's Obermann or Luther himself, uh, your life, your career up to this point has been characterized by the Reformers. Uh, you have uh, Now, on the one hand, you've devoted uh, so much of your scholarship to uh, the wide scope of church history. You've written on a number of Baptists, some, sometimes even some Southern Baptists. You've written mm-hmm. on uh, even even the patristic era or the, the more the, the modern era uh, leading up to our contemporary day. So you're a, a scholar of church history at large, yet at the same time you've chosen to devote uh, your life to uh, the reformers specifically. I think many of our listeners uh, are familiar with uh, the way that you engage reformers, but maybe they don't know why is it that you've chosen the reformers out of all of church history, the reformers in particular, as uh, the, the devotion of your life, so to say. I didn't grow up reading the Reformers. Uh, I grew up in what probably people would call a Southern fundamentalism of, of, of the Baptist variety. Uh, and what we did read was the Bible. And we, we learned to memorize the Bible in the King James Version. That's the only version we had back in those old days. I still think it's a pretty good one myself. I often use it today. Uh, but really, the Bible is what led me to the Reformers, uh, studying the Bible and particularly the problem, if you want to call it that, the theological conundrum, the mystery of of how a person comes into right relationship with God. Uh, I found Paul struggling with that himself in, in Romans and in Galatians. The Gospel of John is filled with that tension. And so uh, reading the Bible uh, led me to read some of the great commentaries of the Church, including those of Luther and Calvin in particular on, on Romans and other books. And this is really kind of what piqued my interest in the Reformation. So when I went to Harvard, I majored in history as an undergraduate at a state university in Tennessee, had a good, I think, very good uh, background in historical method, and had a great teacher who was a Reformation scholar, Bill Wright is his name, and he kind of uh, showed me the wonders and the glories of the Reformation as well as the dark side of it. And so when I got to Harvard, I was ready to delve into the sources. And I began to read as voluminously as I could in in the original sources. One of the things we talked about Steinmetz briefly, one of the things Steinmetz did for me was to introduce me to the history of exegesis. So that the Bible is is not simply enough to read the Bible uh, in the one hand and the newspaper in the other, as Karl Barth famously said. That's a good thing to do. But in between the New Testament and today, there's a whole history of people reading the Bible, people of God in the church reading the Bible. And we need to learn to read alongside them and to learn from them. And it was especially the Reformers who clarified for me the doctrines of grace, uh, the reality of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, all those sola words of the Reformation. Uh, that came alive for me when I began to study and read the Reformers in the light of having been steeped in the Scriptures. Uh, 
We've been talking with Timothy George, the Reformation historian and dean of Beeson Divinity School, but let's take a break and hear from one of our sponsors. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry content. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. We're back from our break and we are ready to talk to Timothy George some more about his life and career. Hmm. Let's fast forward to 1977 uh, in, in which you uh, started teaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I believe I'm right in saying you taught there from 1977 to 88, so uh, a little over... For 10 years, 78 10 years. to 88, yep. 10 years. Now, uh, anyone who knows the history of the Southern Baptist Convention or Southern Seminary in particular knows that those uh, were not always peaceful times. Uh, they were mm-hmm. sometimes very turbulent times. Uh, and in the midst of the 70s and then the 80s, there is this debate between Protestant liberalism and those who would, who would call themselves evangelicals. Uh, as you look, reflect back on your those 10 years, that decade of, of teaching there, uh, what, what was at stake in those years for the denomination itself, and how did it, that work itself out in your own teaching? Um, and, and like you said uh, a minute ago, when it comes to history, being boring is a sin, and, and part of the reason for that is because life and death issues hang in the balance. Did that play itself out in, those, in, in your own lectures uh, during, at Southern Seminary? You probably ought to ask the students who heard me give them, <laughs> but I, I, will, I will say this. I loved my 10 years on the faculty of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I love teaching. That's what I, I get the greatest joy out of teaching and preaching. I, I've been an administrator these decades here at Beeson, and I've done a few other things in my life, but God called me to preach the gospel when I was 11 years old, and there's nothing like that unless it's teaching in a classroom, mind on mind, heart on heart and seeing eyes open and dialogue. So I, I just had a wonderful time in the classroom at Southern, and to this day, though it's many, many years later, I still hear from some of those students. So uh, some of the students have gone on to be rather famous in their own world, like the president of Southern now, Al Mohler, was one of my students in those days. Another great student from that time is a person I bet your podcast listeners, some of them will know, uh, Mark Dever. Yes. Uh, he was my student in those days. So um, th- it was a wonderful experience. Now, swirling around that experience at Southern in Louisville was the debate in the Southern Baptist Convention. When I came to Southern, um, I was aware that there were rumblings about this. I didn't come there to kind of weigh in on one side of the debate or the other and never have seen myself as kind of a partisan political advocate. Uh, But it was clear to me, and I made statements, certain statements, that I thought it was important for the Southern Baptist Convention to return to and re 
recover some of its evangelical and reformed roots. I use that language. It was very offensive to some people uh, because they they interpreted it, I think, in starkly church political terms. I was thinking more in theological terms. Uh, But that, uh, in a way, uh, placed me uh, in the controversy, as we called it in those days. Uh, I was and am and consider myself to be a conservative evangelical. Uh, I believe the gospel. I believe the historic Baptist uh, faith of our fathers and mothers. Uh, And I tried to set that forth as best I could uh, in those days. I I was not a major player, as others became in the SBC controversy, and really tried not to be a partisan. But there were certain basic moral, fundamental, and theological principles I felt it was worth standing up for. And I tried to do that in my own way. Now, you've called yourself uh, a conservative, evangelical Christian. Uh, I like what you said a minute ago, how you were attempting to recover evangelical reformed roots and and how you saw that as uh, a theological commitment as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've also played a major role, along with uh, individuals like J.I. Packer, uh, in uh, the evangelicals and Catholics together, uh, meetings and, and publications, and uh, that movement has, has received, uh, given now it's been many years, that movement has received both praise and criticism, uh, some believing yeah. the movement brought Protestants and Catholics uh, the closest they've ever been since the Reformation, others questioning whether there could be true unity over uh, key doctrines like justification, sola fide, or the imputation of, mm-hmm. of Christ's righteousness. As you look back and, and really look forward uh, to to what lies ahead is what what does the future look like for uh, Roman Catholic and Protestant dialogue? Is there a future, and uh, in what ways are you optimistic and pessimistic about it? Well, I have to go back to George Williams, my great teacher at Harvard, who was a Protestant observer at all four sessions of the Second Vatican Council. New Pope John Paul II, when he was still a bishop in in Poland. Uh, before he became uh, the Pope. And it was Williams, in a way, I think, who put in me this sense of Christian unity and and the importance of engagement, especially with Catholics, also with Orthodox in the East. Uh, I would not dismiss that, but my experience has been more with dialogue between uh, Catholics and Protestants. Uh, So uh, I was drawn into this movement uh, called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, which was the the vision of two individuals and the product of their friendship. One was Chuck Colson, the great prison reformer, and the other was Richard John Newhouse, a former Missouri Synod Lutheran who became a Catholic priest and the founding editor of First Things magazine. Chuck Colson and Richard John Newhouse recognized that the two largest religious groups in North America, evangelicals and Roman Catholics, had no dialogue, no kind of exchange going between them, and it was important because we shared many common concerns in the culture, in society, but also because we we made certain claims about the Christian faith, and there there sometimes were uh, tension there. We needed to talk about this. So Evangelicals and Catholics Together was born in 1994. Uh, Jim Packer and I and Tom Oden, another figure, a great Methodist theologian, were drawn into that movement uh, on the evangelical side. We had some great Catholic scholars, uh, Cardinal Avery Dulles, maybe being the most prominent on the Catholic side. 
And so we met. We, it's still ongoing, by the way. It's, it hasn't ceased. It's not as controversial now as it has been at some times, thank the Lord. But we still meet uh, twice a year. We, we take topics. Uh, we develop papers. We present them. We have, uh, if you wouldn't call them debates, at least very frank discussions about these ideas. We pray together. And at the end of that process, usually two, two and a half years, we produce a, a paper. And uh, we're working on a topic right now, the, uh, the, the gift of the child. What about children? Jesus said you have to become a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yet children are very fragile in our society today. And, and so we want to look at that biblically, theologically, ecumenically. Uh, now, have we solved all the problems of the Reformation my uh, good friend Mark Knoll, a wonderful historian himself, uh, published a book several years ago with the title, Is the Reformation Over? Question mark. And I was asked to give an endorsement for it. Well, I said this. Well, the Reformation is over only to the extent that in some measure it has succeeded. And I think in some measure the Reformation has succeeded. Uh, for example... Catholics today uh, have the Bible and study the Bible avidly. Uh, that's different than it used to be. And there are many other fronts on which we can say there's been advance. There are also some areas that we have not made progress or much progress on. So um, justification, is you mentioned one of, one of the issues. Uh, I think the needle has moved to some extent on justification, but we're not there yet. There's still very important differences on that, on Scripture and tradition, on a host of other issues we could spend the whole time talking about, the Virgin Mary, the Doctrine of Purgatory, the saints. There's some points of continuity and some points of difference. So what we've tried to do in ECT is to practice what I've called an ecumenism of conviction, not an ecumenism of accommodation. In other words, we don't ask you to give up your beliefs to come to this table, but let's come and drill down deep into our own tradition in the belief that if we drill deep enough and far enough, we will come to a common font of Christian wisdom, which is Jesus Christ himself. And there is the unity that we're seeking. But you don't get that by uh, practicing least common denominator ecumenism, ecumenism of accommodation. Uh, we have to practice an ecumenism of conviction. We haven't convinced everybody, and uh, we probably never will, because the roots of our differences are deep, and some of them are visceral, emotional, cultural, as well as theological. And so we ha we keep at this. We take seriously Jesus' high priestly prayer uh, to the Holy Father in John 17, where he prayed that his disciples would be one, as he and the Father are one, so that the world might believe. And the last part of that statement is extremely important. We don't just do this uh, as a theological exercise or even to come to some kind of superficial agreement in doctrine. We do this in order to advance the mission of the church and the witness of the gospel in the world so that the world might believe. And when the world looks at us and we are disunited, uh, I think some people are, are put off by that, and it's a, it's a hindrance. But we don't sacrifice truth in the sake of unity. We always seek unity in truth. That's the Jesus way. That's the gospel way. 
Now, I mentioned earlier, and, and you talked about how you were at Southern for 10 years and you how much you enjoyed your time teaching there uh, up to about 1998, uh, 1988, that is. Uh, and then mm-hmm. you, in 88, you went to Beeson, where you became the founding dean of, of Beeson Divinity School. I believe I'm right in saying that there were only around 31 students there at the time. Mm-hmm. T- today, that's, that's a different story. Uh, so this were, these were early days, uh, first days. And uh, now you've, you've served as the dean there for, is it over 30 years? Well, this coming summer will be 31 years, yeah. 31 years. Uh, three decades. Uh and now you are finishing uh, that uh, those three decades, and, and you're looking to uh, what lies ahead, the next chapter. I remember reading somewhere you were talking about uh, these these past three decades and uh, your vision for the school from from beginning to end. And at one point, you uh, you used the word Eucharist to express uh, the type of gratitude you had uh, as you as you looked back at the school and its development. Uh, I think I know what you mean by that. That might be a surprising choice of of word uh, of term terminology uh, for our listeners. Maybe you could could talk about why you chose the word Eucharist and how that that uh, says volumes about your time at Beeson. Yeah, I said that when I think back on these uh, three decades at Beeson Divinity School, I, th- I think back eucharistically. I think used it as an adverb <laughs> in a eucharistic way. And of course, uh, eucharist is the Greek word to give thanks, thanksgiving. It becomes a special word in the history of the Church for the Lord's Supper, for the table of the Lord, and I have no problem calling the Lord's Supper Eucharist. But I'm thinking of it in a broader sense, that God has poured out His grace upon us, and what's the response of that? Well, one of the great documents of the Reformation, back to the 16th century, uh, certainly one of my favorite, is the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563. And the great theme of the Heidelberg Catechism is the great grace of God that is poured out in Jesus Christ. And the response to that is gratitude. That's the key word in the Heidelberg Catechism, gratitude. And so that's what I feel about uh, my experience at Beeson, uh, is uh, Eucharist, is gratitude, is thanksgiving, thanksgiving to God above and most of all for calling us to this work and blessing us and sustaining us. Uh, through the years for giving me wonderful, wonderful colleagues and great, great students uh, that have studied here over the years. And uh, we have graduates of our school that are serving the cause of Jesus Christ in every continent on earth. And nothing gives me greater joy than to hear from them or to meet them and spend time with them, see what God is doing in their lives. So, uh, being the leader of a school like this is certainly, you're aware of how many people are involved, how God is using and calling forth his servants in all kinds of wonderful ways. And, uh, you know, we've been by and large, not 100%, but by and large, I think, a safe place for serving Jesus Christ and advancing his kingdom. Our school has not been marked with a lot of controversy, a lot of conflict. I'm thanking God for that. 
because it's a gift of the Lord that we've been able to do this in a way that uh, promotes both unity in Christ and peace in the body of Christ. And even though we're a very diverse community, we're an evangelical interdenominational school. We're we're not a strictly Baptist or Presbyterian school of one denomination. But within that kind of diversity, there's been a great sense of cohesion and unity, which is focused on our common commitment to Jesus Christ. We've been talking to Timothy George, uh, the dean of Beeson Divinity School now for uh, nearly 31 years, and uh, the author of a number of books, uh, books on uh, the, the Reformers, uh, reading scripture with the Reformers, uh, theolo- the, the theology of the Reformers, and uh, also uh, he's the uh, editor of the Reformation Commentary on Scripture series with IVP, uh, a collection of, of commentaries that uh, brings together some of those primary sources from the Reformation, uh, uh, such a valuable resource. I would encourage our listeners uh, not just to read uh, Timothy George's books, but also to consider his career, his life. Uh, we've talked about uh, so much of it from his early days at Harvard to uh, the, the, the way he uh, taught at Southern Seminary to uh, the last three decades of, of his leadership at Beeson Divinity School. Timothy George, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Thank you, Matthew. God bless you and your good work. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.